0: Welcome to the Clear the Shelf podcast with Chris and Chris, the show that meets at the intersection of education and entertainment to discuss online arbitrage, retail arbitrage, wholesale, and all facets of selling on Amazon. We'll bring you news, tactics, strategies, insights, stories, and interviews to help you grow your Amazon business. And now, here are your hosts, Chris Grant and Chris Rasick. What's up, Amazon sellers, and welcome back to the Clear the Shelf podcast with myself and my auto-Sketiastic co-host, Chris Rasick. Uh, Today, we have a very special guest, Dylan. He's the co-founder of the Aura Repricer uh, and a former Amazon seller himself. You may have heard his podcast about selling wholesale on Amazon. You may have read the Vendrive blog. Uh, You may have been in his Facebook group. You may see him on Twitter. Uh, he's been around uh, a while, uh, but today we're going to be discussing what I think is probably one of the most important aspects of, of any Amazon business, it, and that's repricing. Uh, prices on Amazon are changed literally billions of times a day across all of the listings uh, that, that are on Amazon. And if you want to be competitive, you probably need to also be repricing rather than doing it manually. So, we brought in a professional to show us the way. Now, before we dive in, you know the drill. The show isn't free. Uh, we may not hide this show behind a paywall, but if you find some value in this episode, please give us some digital dap by hitting the follow button on your favorite podcast player or YouTube or take a screenshot of this and share it with your social media following. Uh and that gives us just enough of a dopamine hit uh that we need to occasionally record some new episodes for for you people. Uh so, Dylan, I appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us, man. I know that this is not only is it Q4, but you guys have recently upgraded to Aura 1.0. And so I know that you are incredibly busy, um, but I always like to kind of set the table just a little bit. Uh, I know many people probably already know who you are, but could you give us a short version of, uh, of who you are and what you've done in this space?
1: Yeah, th- thanks for having me on. Um, <clears throat> so like most sellers got started with uh, hearing about retail arbitrage on Pat Flynn's uh, Smart Passive Income podcast like a decade ago, probably more mm-hmm. actually at this point, started to test the waters, um, realized it was real, it was not a scam, so that was cool. And then, you know, the next, the first fork is, okay, well, what does this mean? Do I wanna do this? Is it a side hustle, is it a business, what have you? And I really dove deep into that. So I started spending 10, 12 hours a day um, sourcing, and then decided to go back to college full-time as a finance major, because that's important to me. Um, I thought I was going to go into private equity or investment banking at the time, and time was not an option for me. So um, I wanted to be in classes, in school, in person um, for me that I learned better that way. And so I kind of had to make a shift to OA. And at that time, the tooling was not as great as it currently is, um, and I failed miserably, was not great at it. (laughs) So... um, my next decision was wholesale or private label. Well, wholesale makes a lot more sense for cash flow, uh, for paying your bills relatively fast, whereas private label is a good investment long-term. So I went the wholesale route. Um, and essentially, hate to say burn the bridges, but created a rule for myself, which was I'm not allowed to buy inventory unless it is wholesale. I kind of had to f- force myself to learn it. It took me a few months, eventually cracked the code, started to understand it, um, started to do well, started to grow it. Um, then met my now co-founder James um, on Instagram because I was essentially DMing everybody Who was doing seven figures with wholesale while i was doing six there's probably eight people public doing it um started having a weekly mastermind call just sharing knowledge right just how are you doing this how am i doing that what tools are you using blah 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 um and we realized we had the same processes built out and hacked together with like trello and google sheets and james was like hey i'm a computer science major right now like i'm pretty good i can just build this for us we're like yeah let's do it so we built vindrive crm.com and really started to cut our teeth and understand software as a business model because we were first-time founders in that world. We didn't even consider it founders. It was just like, let's just see what's possible here. And so I started teaching um, how to source wholesale for free every two days for two and a half years, built an audience, had the Wholesale Made Easy podcast to teach how do you think about this from an evergreen perspective um, versus just the nitty-gritty tactics which can change week by week. Um, And messed up a lot. With Vendrive CRM, it's a very small market. We didn't charge a whole lot. Um, And so we paused and we said, okay, well, we really learned a lot of lessons in terms of how to do support, how to do ops, how to do marketing. Um, And we can build product and we love building product. What's an area that we wish was done better and different for us as sellers? And we we ultimately decided on um, repricing. So that's when we started Mm -hmm. to work on uh, Aura. The beta took off. Uh, We had 25 people in the beta once we went public. I mean, it just took off. And so we've just been growing ever since. And so I kind of make it a difficult decision to uh, no longer be a seller. I, For me, I like going head first into something. Um, and so I traded that business essentially for um, more time to work on Aura and grow and really just understand the software world. Um, and that's what we've been doing. So the company is, oh gosh, probably right around eight years old now, we're fully bootstrapped, um, You know, hiring the team, growing. So yeah, it's been a lot.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it you know, I don't know, No, because I know you personally, I guess it doesn't necessarily surprise me, but I've known some other people who would not touch repricing with a 10 foot pole. Uh, so I, <laughs> I applaud you guys for having the guts to to go into that, you know, that little niche.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Um, I love talking, you know, we'll we'll try to integrate with somebody with another tool and they're like, oh, well, we're actually working on it ourselves. And we're like, hey, I get it. You know, it's all good. They come back six months later and they're like, ah, that didn't work out. <laughs> we don't want to do that. Or you have larger sellers that are like, oh, I'm just doing it myself. Um, and they're like, well, I already built something for myself, customized, you know, i got the code, blah, blah, blah. So I'm just going to commercialize it. I'm like, that is fundamentally a different approach. Like the way you build things um, to build a software company versus building in, or uh, creating internal tooling, totally different scales. Um, so it was the most difficult thing. Um, I mean, the... The beta alone, which is relatively bare bones, took James by himself 80 hours a week for eight to nine months. I'm non technical. So, you know, it was, it was James cranking it out, Red Bulls after Red Bulls. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a thing that is so impactful and so important. And there's a lot of things that are possible now that, you know, a few years ago were not. Um, but it is a very complex technical problem to solve. So, when you're talking software, most of the time you have something called CRUD a CRUD application. Essentially, you're creating, you're retrieving, you're updating and deleting information in the database. So that's not terribly complex in reality. Um, a lot of your no-code tools essentially help you build CRUD apps. Um, so CRUD. What we do with repricing is not CRUD. <laughs> it's heavy on algorithms. It's heavy on processes. Like even the way we design the architecture of the software so how do we model what is what how do we define what repricing even is is so important and so this rebuild going into 1.0 instead of just bolting features on the what we now call legacy aura we're like man we have to completely re-architect because um, there's just so much we can't do with that architecture and so what we do is very complex so if you're attempting to build one commit a year to it <laughs> minimum um, it's it's very difficult
0: that's that's interesting
1: Now, not that
0: I, because you know that you and I have talked privately, we've talked on podcasts before, Uh, you know that I I enjoy uh, having conversations with you. Um, But I am curious, does James ever come out from behind the safety of his keyboard and (laughs) and start talking about uh, Aura or, or anything else he's done?
1: So not publicly. Um, James is a little bit more private of a person. You know, it's our archetypes are very interesting. So when you're choosing a co-founder, it's funny. A lot of people are like, find somebody just like you because you'll get along. Actually, I think it should be yin and yang. James and our James and I are very similar in a lot of ways, but very different in other ways. The way we think is very different. So James is very analytical, very data driven. Um, these are things that like I'm naturally not good at and I've had to hone that skill over time. And so James is kind of that, uh, Stereotypical engineering archetype, like super in the weeds, like like can just sit down and crank code for like 18 hours and be good. Um, whereas for me, I like being more public facing and the ops side, the growth side, super interesting. The customer success side, super interesting. And so, what's nice is we're not having to vie or, or compete for roles. We it's just very clear who's great at what, and we're just like, great, that's a you thing prank it out or that's a me thing i'm gonna go do that um so yeah i would say less so but it's so funny like when we're in the office and we're jamming as a team like we're so in the weeds and so he he very much is just not publicly if that makes sense
0: yeah that makes sense (laughs) i'll I'll be honest if he ever comes down here to to visit you or anything like that like i i want to take you guys out to lunch i think that'd be a i think it'd be an interesting conversation so
1: Oh, dude, we eat a lot.
0: (laughs) I I love that. Uh, Let's switch gears just a little bit. And Mm -hmm. so for those who might be a bit new to this, uh, or maybe this is their first Q4, maybe they're just now starting to look for a repricer. Could you kind of explain the basics of repricing and and why it's crucial uh, to a seller, to a business, uh, and and why people should probably jump into one maybe sooner than what a lot of people think?
1: Yeah, for sure. So... um, Let's start with the facts. 80, roughly 82% of organic sales have happen in the buy box. And I, I think you tweeted something recently where somebody estimated it's like higher, like 88% or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So either way, over 80% of organic sales are happening in the buy box. So if you want more sales, where do you need to be? In the buy box. Okay. The next question is how do you get in the buy box? Well, you need to have a better offer. Now better is relative. Sometimes it's not having the lowest offer. Sometimes it is having a lower offer, right? Amazon, is known for having affordable prices, they care about their customers, that's what they want. So every second of the day, 24 seven, 365, there is a optimal price, the right price to be well positioned for sales. So repricing doesn't create sales, right? We just position you to be able to capture those sales. So every moment we're running an algorithm, you call those strategies 24 seven on your SKUs and we're saying, great, based on what you want, because it's not always there's no one size fits all necessarily. Um, what should your price be at when your competition changes when the buy box price increases or decreases, you need to be reactive to that. So repricing allows you to be as competitive and reactive to what is occurring to capture more sales by using code that that's really it. So when you go from not using a repricing tool to using one, we tend to see anywhere from forty to sixty percent increase in sales. So it really just depends on kind of like where you're at. But yeah, in terms of like when you get started, if price was if, if everything was free, I would say the day you create your seller account, you should probably set one up just because it's an automated process. But obviously, software costs money. <laughs> there are businesses too, um, so you have to find a route that, or you have to find a certain level of sales where you can justify. It. You know, so I, I kind of bucket software in two camps for when you need it, you have investment software, meaning you know where you're going, and you're going to need it in a month. So you're willing to say, you know what, let's get this set up now, because I'm I'm scaling up, and I'm going to have that problem, I would rather solve, put things in place that make it easier for me to scale, or you have post problem software, which is, I already have that problem, and I needed it three months ago. There's no right answer. But for me, if you can if you understand how to source consistently, and you're doing 2500 to 5000 a month in sales, you should have something. And what's nice, though, is like, it's gonna be more expensive when you're a smaller seller, because it's, it's you know, typically a, a flat fee, right, you have different price tiers. But as you're growing, and you have it in place, and it's helping you grow faster, it becomes cheaper over time as a percentage of your revenue. Mm-hmm. So you know, some people are like, oh, well, I'm going to wait till I have like 25 grand a month in sales. Well, or, uh, you know, the essential plan starts at 97 bucks. That's way too late. Because like, honestly, it took you six months to get there. We could have got you there in three months. Like, <laughs> there, there's an opportunity cost of not growing and not having these, these things in place. What's nice, though, is if you're like, I'm just not sure. What's nice is we don't charge you or we don't ask for a credit card when you create an account. So my thing is, if you're on the fence, we'll go start a free trial. It's 14 days, roughly two weeks. Did it increase your sales by at least 100 bucks, 97 bucks? If it at least did that and you broke even, you didn't lose anything. Now, next month's probably going to be net positive. Most of the time, what we tend to see is there's a net positive within the first few days. Um, So what's nice is it's an overwhelming thing. A lot of people are like, ah, does it make sense? Yeah, it does. It really does. (laughs) Um, So when do you need it? Some people say a number of SKUs. I used to believe that in looking at our data, SKUs have nothing to do with it. So. Use you can have two sellers, right? Each have a thousand SKUs, and I have a great example of this um, in our data. Both have a thousand SKUs. One's doing sixty thousand a month in revenue. The other's doing twelve. So SKUs wow. don't really matter. <laughs> but, well, because wholesale, right? Like wholesale, you need less SKUs to do more revenue. Mm-hmm. Just higher volumes, higher velocities too, typically. So I tend to look at revenue, right? Because okay. you're managing a business, you need to have the cash flow to afford the software, anyways. Um, so if you're around five grand a month in, in sales, and you're like, I know how to source, that's a good time to kick that off.
0: It, honestly, to me, it just makes sense from a time perspective. If I'm just spending 15 minutes a day, you know, and I can I can instead pay a software ninety seven dollars a month to do that, you know, sure I might be repricing from bed while I'm watching Ted Lasso or whatever, but you know, <laughs> now I now I can't next to catches next quick. Um, well, so and, and
1: to follow up on that, it's not just that you're paying 97 for it to do what you're doing. It's doing a 1000 to 10,000 x the volume you were doing, because you're right. doing it once every let's call it once every 15 minutes, you're just on it, right? Okay, it probably took you 30 minutes to do all your skews. And all you're doing is hitting match by box, by the way, you're not actually going in thinking about it strategically, mathematically, right, you're not doing any of that. Um, your time, let's just, let's say your time is worth 10 bucks an hour. Okay. So you're wasting a lot of time already. And after basically a few days, you're starting to kind of come up on that cost. And in between every second that you're not doing it, you're outdated. You just hit match buy box two minutes ago. Guess what? You're two minutes outdated already. Mm-hmm. And so by going to software, I mean, we have accounts that we're re- we're price submitting price updates to the degree we're doing a million plus price updates per 30 days for one account. Wow. Even for- small accounts, I tend to see anywhere from you know, on the low low end 10,000 price updates per 30 days upwards to like 50 to 80,000 price changes per 30 days. That's for the average seller. You can't do that. <laughs> Not going to happen.
0: And and we should make it clear to to those who might be uninitiated Price updates do not mean that this is bringing your price down all the time because That's a good right. repricer will bring your price up if you want to expound on that right. a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, you know, back in the day, the first repricers um, were very simplistic, you know, it was just match to the buy box. And that, that was it. And that, honestly, there's nothing wrong with that. But in today's age, there's two critical things that are changing. And especially in the last, I'd say, six to 12 months, things are starting to exponentially change even complexity. It's less about just being in the buy box. Um, it's more about being strategic about how do we raise it, but not just change our price, but how do we strategically do that in such a way that we're not just raising our price, we're raising the buy box price with us. In doing so, we're not losing sales velocity. Because a lot of sellers come into this world, come into Amazon thinking it's a flipping game. A lot of people come from eBay, but no, nah. like I bought it for five bucks, I'm going to sell it for a hundred, I'm going to hold it for you know, 18 months, great. If it's sitting in your garage, that's fine. But if you're doing FBA, there's an opportunity cost and your capital doesn't scale, doesn't compound fast enough. And so you need to be able to find a way to not only increase sales velocity, but maintain profitability and profit margins. Economically, if we look at it from like a supply demand curve, those two things are inverse, right? <laughs> like, if I love when sellers, newer sellers are like, hey, can you increase my sales by 60% and my margins by 40%? I'm like, maybe, but like typically those two things are separate levers. With that, though, there's a cross-section. That's the optimal price of which you're maximizing sales velocity and getting the most profit possible. That changes. That fluctuation fluctuates honestly for competitive listings every five to ten seconds. It can just change within 20%, especially going into Q4, Q1, where the the demand of the marketplace itself shifts so much. So it's less about just beating the buy box. It's about having a more strategic understanding of getting what you need as a seller and operating within what is true. What are the facts of that listing? What is the facts of your competitors on that listing? What's the time of year? All these things start to matter. And so back in the day, you could be super simplistic and have three rules that was like, if this, do that we're well, we're getting past algorithms. Rule-based just means algorithm. Um, And we're going towards a world of massive complexity without you as the user having to deal with that, you as the seller and speed, how fast can you react to the market? Um, And so things just change super fast. But yeah, it's less about just lowering your price. A price update, I could increase your price by 20%. That might actually make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm.
2: Interesting. I think that you kind of summed that up when you first started uh, talking about repricing. When you use the word, uh, it'll help you find the right price. And you didn't say lower price, you know. And I, I right. think um, <laughs> I think there's a a, a decent amount of uh, a business education just getting a repricer and learning it and understanding your repricer. Yeah. You know, I think you you kind of graduate past the beginner level. Um, You know, mm-hmm. the I still remember when I was very, very green. When I was selling, I was manually repricing, and I would refresh, and my competitors were already lower than me. You know, and I, I felt like <laughs> I was being watched. You know, I just I didn't understand, yeah. Yeah. you know, like uh, uh, everything that was out there, and <laughs> and uh, so uh, you know, getting a repricer, you know, I, but I think that's key that you said the right price, not the lower price, because yeah. I think there's, I, I, that needs to be emphasized. I think you know because a lot of people just kind of yeah go, go lower, go lower, go lower, you know, the, the penny under, um, you know, people think that's a viable strategy when, when there's a lot more complexity to it.
1: Well, and that used to make sense, right? It, it, you have to operate within the limitations of what you can physically do. Right. And so 12 months ago, you couldn't handle this level of complexity. So like that actually made sense. It wasn't perfect, but it was better than the alternative, but you, you highlighted something, which is, there's a lot of misunderstanding. And so For us as a company, we've stood out with our customer support and success from an education perspective. And so a lot of sellers will come in and be like, I don't really know what to do. Great. Let's schedule a call. Like we have resources, we have a video, like there's a right way to do it and it's not, there's no one right way. It always depends, but we have so much data that we can tell you what works and what doesn't work, and unfortunately, you know we're a very community-driven industry, which is awesome. But you—that means everybody has a voice, and in some cases, that voice is um, not educated enough into what is true. They're just echoing what they've been told, and we permeate this concept that like repricing below by a penny is horrible, and like that's the end of the conversation. Not necessarily. Sometimes, actually, it's the right thing to do. Um, but it, it's just putting things into context. And so for us, we like having users come on board and letting us help, letting us educate. Like our support is not Q and A. We don't outsource anything. I think some companies think we outsource a lot. Nothing is outsourced ever. We've never outsourced anything. we team. Uh, I just brought on a sixth person. Actually, I'm, I was onboarding them prior to this call. I jumped right into this. Um, everybody's in the States, in Boston, co-located. Um, We actually care about our users because if you don't succeed, you don't pay us money, we don't succeed. So anything we can do to help you hit your goals, we kind of want to do that. And if that's a 15-minute Zoom call to help you go from like, I'm frustrated and overwhelmed because I'm not getting it to now you feel like a superhero, I'm going to do that. (laughs) Um, And just kind of highlighting some of the false assumptions that users have when they come in because those false assumptions can actually hold them back from performing incredibly well and so we have to say well what assumptions are you coming to the table with if they're correct we'll validate it if it's incorrect we'll educate and then say okay based on what is real now that we've done that here's what we recommend you to do we don't want to just give you a strategy we want you to understand why we're making certain decisions so that you can make those decisions without us that's the part of being a coach right like when i was a personal trainer I didn't just do all this stuff and not educate you. I, my goal is for you to not need me over a period of time. Because if I didn't, then I didn't, you didn't learn anything from me. And that's a disservice to you as, as a client, as a user, so to speak.
2: Yeah, that, that's refreshing to hear. You know, it, with the, um, um, I don't know what to, I don't want to use a derogatory term, but it, with some of the the, cheaper repricers that are out there it, sure. the relationship is more of a, a button heads kind yeah. of thing you know like yeah. i need you to do this and your product isn't doing this you know so that's yeah it's refreshing to hear that uh there, there's actually some guidance and and you explain the why mm-hmm. instead of just the, the yeah. what exactly so can we um can we talk about the upgrade um yeah this was <laughs> a, a, a long time coming um i know yeah. it was a major major <laughs> product um so it's, you've, uh, you've upgraded its Aura 1.0, correct? Yep. Yep. Um, and you've added, uh, uh, is it Maven? Is that what it's called? I'm, I...
1: Maven, yep, Maven. Okay.
2: Um, can you share a little bit about- uh, Sure. What the 1.0 looks at or looks like versus yeah. uh, what you had previously?
1: Sure, so when we sat down to think about the next five years of the product and the company and our users, we had a lot of feedback awesome requests, you know, there's, every software has bugs, right? So we're like, cool, like, we have a list of things we want to work on. And when we went to go start working on that. We're like, ah, the current architecture does not get us where we want to go and where we need to go, even to the scale of which we want to go. So we made the tough decision, and this took like 18-something months to do, to essentially re-architect, redesign, and recode every line. And so we call it 1.0. Because in Legacy Aura, if you if you log into your old account and the version number at the very bottom, it's 0. 0.9 something. In software, you have versions. You have a major, which is the first. You have a minor, which is the, the second after the period. And then the last is a patch. Patches are super small things. Minors, you're, you're fixing some bugs. Um, you're adding some features. Majors are like a step change, like something massive changed. Um, We fundamentally believe that old Aura was a beta. I mean, just based on that, right? Like, there there was no major one, and so we called it 1.0. And it wasn't like it's not an upgrade in the sense of we just added some new features. No, 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 no. We rewrote every line of code. We actually switched to a different language that's a little bit more performative for what we do. Um, fixed a ton of bugs. We re rearchitected in the sense that like some features we now have, we just you, it was fundamentally impossible to add. Um, and yeah, added a ton of features. I mean, just really thought about what's the best foundation for the next five to 10 years, even our design, like we, we have uh, Tasso on our team as a product mm-hmm. designer. Um, he designed everything to be scalable, even in the application, like there were features we would love to have added to legacy where it's like, there's no place to put it. I know that sounds weird, You're like just put it on the page. But that's not a good experience for users. So we actually do user testing on designs before you even write code to see like, does this actually work? Does this actually make sense? Where's the friction? Um, so being really detail oriented there. Um, so 1.0, it is fundament- It is a different software. It's actually hosted differently. <laughs> so when users are migrating from legacy, we say, hey, first create a new account in the new software. When you add your marketplace, we'll then migrate everything over from the old software to the new one. So it is fundamentally different. Um, and yeah, so you know we we've added features like Maven, like Hyperdrive, um, full mobile support, which is actually phenomenal. So if I pull this up here, um, you know, basically what we did is we took the last five, six years of user feedback and we incorporated it into the rebuild. Instead of just rebuilding it and be like, it's the same features and all that stuff, just like better performance. We said, no, 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 like we're going to bake all this in. And so like, this is like a live demo account we have here with, with real listings. Like everything's mobile design first because um, we got there because we talked to users and we said, Hey, just use Aura and let us watch you on Zoom, and they'd be like, "Man, you know, I do RA. I hate to have to like wait till I get home create a task to do something in Aura. Um, it'd be nice if I could just do it on the aisle. Great, what was for done, problem solved. Um, so yeah, it's I mean, it's a laundry list of things we've done, and the roadmap post this relaunch is even more than what we've done here. So we we've sped everything up, like so from a performance perspective. When you're talking repricing, speeds, um, if a company is doing less than instant repricing, they're penalizing you for paying less. That's all that is. They're choosing to say, you can only do it X minutes, right? Once every X minutes. Instant repricing though, doesn't actually mean instant. What it means is that the software, so like Aura has always had instant repricing. That means on our end, what we can control, we do not sell you down. The moment we get a price change notification, we auto-calculate and send it back immediately. However, to go from when we submit it to Amazon via the API, round trip to Amazon, coming back, confirming that it's live, one and a half to two minutes on average. So, instant actually means one and a half to two minutes on average for that to reflect. Now, because the re architecture utilizing the new API features, we're utilizing something kind of in a unique way, we developed something called HyperDrive. So, we can do that full round trip. We can only do it for 50 SKUs. We can do that full round trip, not in one and a half to two minutes. We can do it in less than 10 seconds. So I mentioned earlier, speed and complexity. How do we handle that? So when we sat down to think about, you know, we, we've always been wanting to, to support AI-based repricing. That was the whole theory from day zero. But I'm not a fan of utilizing terms like this for marketing purposes. It's like saying, um, my coffee cup has AI. Is that better just because it has the term? I don't know. And so for us, we took a step back and said, clarify the problem, we're a first principles driven company. That's why we're able to do the scale of things we do with such a small team. What's the first principles? What is true? Get rid of everything else and then build up from there, right? It's the whole like Musk kind of philosophy and algorithm. And so we said, Okay, well, the problem is complexity and speed. Okay, well, speed we can handle with Maven or with a uh, hyperdrive. Maven could handle complexity, but how do we get there? We have to define the problem first. The, the real problem is there's no perfect strategy that you can apply to all your SKUs. If you asked me a year ago, and there's plenty of podcasts of me, of people be like, where should people start? The oscillation. Why? Because that worked 80% of the time. And the oscillation, an oscillation is just a wave, you reprice below by a penny to increase sales velocity so you have more buy box ownership, but then you reset to your, min, uh, your max price once you reach your min price to reset the average net profit per unit that was the best you could do for the most part but then things started to change it's not that simple anymore and our philosophy as a, as a company is to provide leverage to sellers using technology using code so leverage to me is i ha- i get to do less work as the end user but i get more out of it right so i'm not i'm not doing one input in and getting one input out i'm doing i'm giving point two input in, I'm getting five out. That's what we want, right? So the reality of it is every single SKU you have should have a strategy that is optimized for it. And it should change hour by hour. Good luck. Can't do it. So how do you solve that problem? Well, the data is there. It's utilizing the data in the right way. And it's applying intelligence, right? So when people say AI, broad term right you got machine learning you got deep learning you got reinforcement learning um you you got game theory which technically is under the umbrella there are applications of ai in our space that make a ton of sense and like i think using machine learning in our space for resellers makes no sense to me like from a technical perspective because of what it does it basically predicts based on what's happening where the price should be for brands price optimization totally makes sense to me but for resellers you're competing in a game right and so what we wanted to do is say, well, let's not give you AI-based strategies and give you a ton of them because that actually doesn't make sense. What we want to do is design a model that can then run its own experiments, store that in memory, have an ideal outcome. When, when you're talking AI, you're fine tuning for a specific outcome. You have like a reward function, all good stuff to train it, right? So based on what is true, what it tested, it now understands the facts of the listing. And then has an ideal outcome to to get to we call that the optimal price it's a balance between profitability and sales velocity because that makes a lot of sense and then it utilizes different strategies and techniques behaviors really based on what is true in that moment to get your price and ideally the buy box price to the optimal price so most of the time that's higher so what we tend to see is when people come in um, they tend to see a bump in um, profit margin because they're being a little too aggressive on the price. So where the world is going here is not, here's here's a bunch of more strategies for you to, to tweak and blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. It's a model that can factor in far more complexities than you as a human could. And it can do it in real time as the market changes you should not have to change your strategy going into q4 when people are like oh what's your q4 strategy maven because it understands the fact that the demand is changing it understands that the competition is changing it understands that when i'm competing against you i need to do certain behaviors to, to to win versus somebody else so what's nice there is now you have a model that will run its own testing, it will self optimize, it will specify itself as best as it can to that skew to what is true on that skew, and it will self adapt over time and change as the things change. That's what's important. And so, you know, rule based strategies tend to have anywhere from 15 to I'd say, it could be up to 30 settings that you have to go in and tweak what you're doing is you're having to think of every single scenario and saying, well. How do I factor in that scenario? But by the way, when you factor in that scenario, now you've negated this other scenario elsewhere. And saying, instead, we'll handle more complexity and you give us one setting. How do you want your min prices set? That's it. Max prices are useful. We auto-calculate that correctly because we're looking at things like, what was the last price the buy box was suppressed at? Let's factor that in. It's kind of important, right? Um, And then we have that optimal price, which we calculate. In real time. As things change. Today it could be 95. Uh tomorrow it could be 102. Markets change. The the same toy in Q1 might be 25 bucks optimal price and Q4 could be 65 bucks all day long. Right. And so now you're handling more complexity, more scenarios in real time, faster, and you did less. That's leverage. And for us, we needed an architecture that would enable that to be true. Now when we're talking even just uh, simpler things. Four pages have something called auto-refresh every five seconds or is checking for updated information via the API. We haven't, you're not seeing it. We're just gonna push the data live to the page. You're not pressing a refresh button anymore. The issue is if you're if you landed on that page 10 minutes ago and now you're making a decision based on the data you're seeing, that data is outdated already. You need real, as real time as possible data. Because things can, can fluctuate, can change so fast. The competitor you're about to com- compete against just went out of stock. Now your decision is completely different. You need to be able to see that. You need to be able to know that in real time. Um, even So like Legacy Aura had, was designed on the back end when we're talking architecture to say, whenever you make a change to a, a, a SKU, a listing, or your strategy settings, we're going to reflect that change on the next organic price change. On average, that's about 15 minutes. Could be up to three hours. That was our safety net seven, eight years ago, that was totally fine. And that speed was actually awesome. Today, now, real time. When I change my strategy min from 30% 30 to 15% in Legacy Aura and I click Save, nothing's happening until the next organic price change. Anywhere from five minutes to three hours. New Aura, every listing has memory. We store that locally. So what's nice is when you click Save in New Aura doing that same thing, your prices are updating now immediately. And it's gonna be anywhere from less than 10 seconds if you're utilizing hyperdrive or one and a half to two minutes round trip using the regular feed system. But we are submitting it now. I don't care if you got a million SKUs, now. So we're transitioning to a world of real time data, analysis, and do the thing I need you to do. (laughs) That's why it was so important to do this re-architecture. Hyperdrive was not possible Without re architecting, the replay system was not possible without re architecting. The auto refresh system is not possible without re architecting. Maven was not possible without a better architecture. And so it took us a while because it was a lot of work. <laughs> um, but now, whatever we build and add on to, it's on a better foundation that's scalable, hyper flexible. Um, and that was a worthwhile decision for us. So I can't go into the nitty-gritty of every single every single thing we changed because it's a lot. Every page has been redesigned, rethought through. There's more data, there's no more coming soon badges. Buy box ownership percentage is there for your marketplace, for your SKUs. We're giving you more data on your SKUs. To go in depth. Every page is thoughtful in terms of how you're supposed to utilize it. That feels natural because we watched people do it and found the pattern. Um, but like, you know, the mobile support, like that's a small thing, but it's impactful for the people who need it. Um There's just, there's so much there. We're going from supporting just, you know, North America, three marketplaces to all 20. So currency got completely revamped. Um, We went from, you have one user and you got to share your credentials with their VA to now we have a organization and you have users within that. The inventory lab integration, completely rewritten. It used to take 24 to 48 hours for us to import costs from the old, um, for new SKUs. Now it's immediate. I mean, just everything, (laughs) every line of code is rewritten, rethoughtful re uh, rethought through in a different language, even so. It's just it's fundamentally a, a new era for the software. Interesting. Yeah.
0: So now I'm curious, and I, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get a little bit more into the weeds here. And sure. So with all of this thought out uh, and all of the mm-hmm. complexities, and and you know, is Amazon is Amazon. I don't know. It feels to me like we're going through those uh, those angsty teen years. You know, I used to say Amazon was. <laughs> Was kind of walking, but we've moved to the angsty teen years. Um,
1: yeah,
0: how does how does Aura handle uh, like regional buy boxes or can it? And the reason yeah. I ask is I, I can't. Yeah, I didn't think so. Yeah, I, I haven't found anything that can.
1: You can't, so they don't expose that via the API. Um, mm-hmm. So this is where get, this is something called platform risk. Basically, our business sits on top of Amazon's API. Right, so we can only do what they allow us to do. Now we can be creative in terms of this thing does this, this other thing does this other thing. We combine it in a unique way on our end. We can do some fun stuff. That's kind of what we did with with uh, Hyperdrive. But when you're talking buy boxes, the API is just like there is the buy box, and that is it. Now, what I've been recommending as the hack for getting more regional buy boxes is give more Im- inventory. <laughs> like the more inventory you give, and the more spread you have your inventory, the more likelihood of you getting a regional buy box is so um, it's kind of a two pronged approach when somebody's like, how do I increase sales, like a ton, like I really want to put like pedal to the metal, have an amazing repricing tool, Ship in more inventory on the right SKUs. Mm -hmm. obviously, Um, if you can do that, you're gonna see things explode relatively fast.
0: Okay, perfect. Yeah, I just wanted to be sure that you hadn't thought of something that that you know, myself or Kipo would have missed. Yeah, um, I so would. All right, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so now that there's Maven, I, I know mm-hmm. that there's also you can also use strategies inside of Aura. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. What would you What would you suggest for a seller who's either just getting started with Aura or maybe has a, a smaller amount of inventory? Uh, do they yeah. just go Maven and, and let the thing ride, or should they have their own strategies? What would you coach them on?
1: Yeah, so Maven and all fifty uh, Hyperdrive credits are on the more expensive Pro tier because not, you know, it's. I always come back to like if if everything costs nothing, then like yes, you should like objectively, it would be better. But for us, we always think about what's the ROI, what's the impact, right? Um, if I if I'm a if I'm a brand new founder and I'm week zero, uh, week one into my business. Would it objectively be better if I if I built a team of eight people that are world-class? Yes. If it didn't cost me anything, and let's assume I'm not raising money, right? However, it does cost you money, and so you have to make trade-offs. Um, so what I tend to recommend, and we designed the trial of Aura, so you get to trial everything. right? So when you come in, you default to the essential tier, but you have access to all the pro- tier features, because go try it. Maybe it does make sense, right? It's not up for me to tell you yes or no, right? Kind of depends. We have general best practices of when we see in the data, it makes a lot of sense for the value. Um, But for the new seller, you know, you can get by with two to three rule based strategies and be okay. This is where you have to make that decision, like I mentioned earlier of, is it you're like really trying to grow fast and you want to make that investment to help you go faster okay let's talk about that um but for a seller that's just figuring things out you got to start somewhere um you know maven is way more expensive in terms of like engineering resources (laughs) for us Mm. to do so we have to be able to like find a price point that is affordable but also like makes sense for us as a business too you know, I listen. I'm a big Star Trek fan, and they're in like this post um, post scarcity world where everything's free, and you just have access to all the things. If that world were here, i be like, yeah, of course you shouldn't use that. <laughs> but we are in capitalism, uh, and so it's got to make sense. So, if you're getting started, you can test it for free. And if you're like, wow, it made at least the amount that it would cost me per month in that two week, you should probably stick with that. <laughs> like, that's a good sign. But if you're brand new, you're doing five grand a month. That price point, in my opinion, is a little too steep relative to your cash flow. I mean, you know, we're in this too, right? There's there's souls that we use We're like, man, like, I'm like, waiting to get to a point where like, it makes sense for us to have like that crazy tier because it's got some features. I'm like, man, that would be incredible. But we don't really have that problem at the scale of which that feature or product would solve it for us. Like we're just not quite there yet. And so it's just understanding where you're at, you know, we're not super salesy. Like I, I, I dislike when companies are like, Oh, you should just use the most, most expensive tier. It's like, not really, but it depends, right? Like if you're, I would say doing more than 50 grand a month in in sales, you should start to consider the pro tier very quickly. Um, If you're less than that, It kind of depends on what you're doing, right? If you're like, I got tons of capital, I'm ramping up, I'm going to hit up. Hey
0: guys, wanted to take a quick second and thank you for listening to the Clear the Shelf podcast. My magnanimous co-host, Chris Rasick, has put together a gift for you for being a listener. It's called the Monthly Goal Tracking Spreadsheet and it's free. The spreadsheet will help you break down and track how much you've purchased, which should be a leading indicator of how much you will sell. And then you'll be able to track how much you've sold as well as your estimated monthly profit on a daily basis basis. This will all feed into the daily averages so you can ensure that you're on track to meet your goals each and every month. Grab it for free today over at cleartheshelf.com forward slash goal dash tracking. Thanks again for being a listener. Now back to the show.
1: hundred grand in sales from 25 grand in sales in the next three months. Okay, that's a different story. We should probably put some things in place to make it easier for you to scale. But if you're five to 15 grand a month in, in sales, Stick with the essential, like you still got access to five hyperdrive credits, um, still got workflows, still got our team, which is pretty important, right? We can we love diving in when somebody's just like, just go look at my stuff and tell me how to make it better. Great, I'll do that all day long. You want me to make the changes too? <laughs> we'll do it all day long. Um, so it's not that anything less than Maven is not worth it, it's when does Maven make sense? There's tools that utilize AI. Um, there's a few on on the success side, the support side that I'm looking at, they're like 600 bucks a month starting like the low tier. Would I love to have it? Yeah. Does it really solve our problem? Yeah, but we don't have the problem at the scale at which that feature and product is designed to sell. You know, it's like we we just wouldn't get the full value of it because we're just not large enough quite yet. Um, so Mm -hmm. that's kind of how I tend to think about it, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So, would you would you say that they should those folks should probably just use like an oscillation strategy still?
1: Yeah, I mean, effective? you know, it it's not that it's the most effective; it's that it tends to work the best eighty percent of the time. What I mm-hmm. don't want users and sellers to have to do is go and create five to ten rule based strategies and have to be in there manipulating it. And be like, all right, well, now it's Tuesday, so I want to do this one. You really—that's too much when you're starting out, you're not trying to optimize for maximum complexity. That's what Maven's designed to do. You're maximizing the value as much as you can, right? And what I mean by that is like, you're not trying, like optimizing the first 80% of of anything is the low hanging fruit. The last 10 to 20% is exponentially harder to do. It's like building a skill. You can really get pretty awesome at most skills within a few weeks. You want to become world class, that last 20 to 40% of that skill mastery, 10 years. <laughs> totally different ball game. So it's less about you getting everything perfect all the time in every scenario. And it's about handling things at a level of scale that frees up a ton of your time and maximizes your sales and, and protects your profit margins as much as possible. Oscillation tends to handle 80% of SKUs really well. The other 20% are broken down into you need to liquidate your inventory. That's a slightly different variation of a strategy. Um, and there's things that... There's just odd listings. There's always like 10% of your, your SKUs that are just weird listings. Like, And what I mean by that is just it doesn't follow the behaviors you would expect it to follow. And so therefore, we need to treat those as exceptions and then go create a strategy to handle that specifically. So two to three strategies is typically what I recommend for most people, but you can get started with one. A lot of sellers just have one and they're like, I'm good with that. Perfect. It depends on how you buy. You know, it's, I've always said that repricing is an amplification or a multiplier of your inventory. Got bad inventory? I don't care what tool you're using. It doesn't matter. Got really good inventory? You're going to do really well with repricing. So first and foremost, make sure that you're Buying profitable enough inventory, the repricing will take care of itself for the most part outside of that
2: that's a good point if if you're if the buy box is below your min, what your repricing will possibly you. do for you <laughs> <laughs> right
1: yeah, exactly, exactly,
2: yeah you said you were a personal trainer, uh you know the you said the last ten percent it's not unlike that last five or ten pounds too, right that's right another exponentially harder or in my case yeah, that exactly last thirty pounds but you know,
1: that's, 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 <laughs> it's all about perspective,
2: <laughs> right? Right. Um. So, for uh, for more experienced sellers, um, can you uh go into a little more detail about uh some mm-hmm. some more advanced uh repricing strategies?
1: Yeah. So, so Maven's gonna be that, right? It's the world we're going into. Man, you you really got to start shifting your perspective. Um, I know AI is getting hyped up. or But what's so interesting is when you look at the hype cycle, so there's a technical academic hype cycle of technology, right? So it first comes out, everybody's like, oh my gosh, I could do all these crazy things, but the technology is not really there. So that's the first hype where basically it gets oversold and overpromised. But then what happens is people kind of forget about it, but people keep working on it. it. Nobody cares. And then all of a sudden it becomes real. The hype cycle, the first hump, if you will, for AI was in the 70s. We are now transitioning into the holy crap, it's real. Um, I've tweeted this a handful of times and I, 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 I will back this all day. And I'm gonna say two to three years, I'm gonna be conservative. Sellers will not have virtual assistants. You will have digital assistants doing sourcing for you. Uh, I was talking with Chris- Sounds very about much like this offline. Yeah, I, I was talking with Chris about this offline recently. I have used an off-the-shelf model and have has got I've gotten it to do it one time correctly. And I'm non technical. So the fact that it did it is a proof of concept. Now it's making a model work and structuring things correctly, getting access to the right data. The future of e commerce, and I bucket Amazon very much in e commerce as as a larger niche is drowning in data that you cannot take advantage of Unless you're technical or the software is designed for it. So, what AI is enabling finally is us handling more complexities. The world is getting more and more and more complex. As you're adding, as you're growing as a seller and you have 10,000 SKUs, your level of complexity is far more than you ever imagined. You just don't see the data, but it's there. And so, most sellers, when they're at you know a thousand plus SKUs, they're really operating, in my opinion, at 60% of what is truly optimal, of what is possible. So how do you how do you handle that? More so how do you think about it? Code is really good at handling a lot of things, but when you write code, you explicitly say, do this. Now you can have algorithms that say, okay, if this happens, do this other thing, and you know, we can have some conditions. But where we're going to is, how do, we, how do we handle, how do we ingest far more attributes, more data? And not just that, how do we design a system that can run its own experiments, its own testing, store that in memory, and make its own decisions? Now, algorithms, in a sense, make its own decisions, but it doesn't necessarily run its own experiments. So it's kind of up to you as a user, as a seller, to, to go in there, pick it all apart, and be like, "What do I need to do? What what if you didn't need to?" Right. And so for sellers that are growing, they need leverage. They need technical leverage. You know, in the Amazon space, we love using human labor as leverage, virtual assistants. Everybody's got one, right? And that's human leverage. Technical leverage, in my opinion, is and has always been better. Code is repeatable. I write the code one time and it performs every single time moving forward and I can tweak it and change it and make it better. What AI models are allowing us to do is take that level of technical requirement. Like I'm non-technical, I can write some code, but I'm not nearly an engineer at all. So there are things that I can't do. But utilizing models that are trained and, and fine-tuned for writing code, I can now just be like, I don't know how to do this tell me and write the code and explain it to me so now i'm i have this intelligent co-pilot working with me on different things so when you have a world an industry that is drowning in amazing data and you can apply a level of intelligence on top of that to not only just be like here's the data you go analyze it you go make the decisions What it can do is it can sit on top of that. It can contextually understand it, and it can say, hey, here's what's happening. Here's what you need to be aware of. Here's what I recommend you do. That's interesting, because if you look at repricing, traditionally, what is happening? You're looking at your SKU. You're analyzing the data. You're making a decision, and you're taking action on it. But how do you know that that's actually the optimal, most right decision? And that requires your time to go in. When you have the time, when you're not sourcing, building the company, whatever, to go and do that. So, what if instead you had a model that could take in more data, that could actually understand what works and what doesn't, and find patterns that you never could see, and then self optimize? That's interesting. And so, I think for larger sellers, you need that. <laughs> like, what don't you have? Time. Your time as the company grows, the value of it increases exponentially. Now, that doesn't mean go get a VA and be like, hey, 24-7, just hit match buy box, right? No. The impact of utilizing something that goes from 60% optimal to even 78% optimal for somebody who's doing 50,000 plus, somebody who's doing a million a month of revenue is massively impactful. Increasing your sales for a newer seller that's, you know, let's say sub 20,000 a month in revenue, I can increase you 40 to 60% if you're coming from not repricing pretty much all day long. But let's look at the dollar amount, right? That's a percentage. It's still impactful, but imagine, I mean, 10, 20% increase in sales and maintaining, if not increasing profit margin for somebody doing a million a month in sales, 50,000 a month in sales. The dollars are massive. And so that further allows, that person to have access to more capital faster that they can redeploy. So the biggest the biggest limiting factor for a seller is two things, access to inventory and capital. If you got that big, you don't have an access to inventory problem, you have a capital problem. And so now it becomes how efficient can you spend your capital? And how efficiently can you move your inventory? How can you turn it in a way that actually makes the most sense? You're not turning it too fast, in which case you're missing out on profits, or trying to get 20% too low, in which case your profit margin looks nice, but you're actually missing out on sales dollars too. That's why with Maven, we set out to find that balance between sales velocity and profit margin. You kind of want both, right? (laughs) Um, So for larger sellers, you need to be thinking about how are you solving highly scalable problems utilizing modern technology that is affordable. If that makes sense. Right? You're, you're not going to hire a VA to optimize your PPC campaigns in the next year or two, you're going to have a model that's going to do that for you. I mean, we, we do this all, all already. G- Google ads is going away from you creating hard campaigns. They have smart campaigns. Now, what's the outcome mm-hmm. you want? What's the limitations that you want? Let us do it for you. You can't actually go you cannot create a a text campaign, a text ad where you say, I want it to say this, you say, here's all the variations you could use. And it will go and test all those variations, and it will self-optimize. A human couldn't do that that fast. Mm. But software can't, right? So the world in which we're going, you need to start thinking about things differently. Because in my opinion, I think it's going to happen really fast. And I think the sellers that are just like, I don't care, I'm just going to keep hustling. You're going to get left behind. You will. Um, Interesting. Yeah.
0: It, it, it has been fascinating to see how quickly, uh, AI has grown, you know, uh, and mm-hmm. let's just use chat GPT as an example, you know, yeah. it was, uh, oh, that's cute to, oh, <laughs> wow. You know, and now I'm very non-technical and I built a bot, uh, based off of, you know, all of our, uh, or well, sorry, I have ten of our podcasts and ten of my blog posts, and yeah. you know, I let Chris try it out. I tried it out. You ask it a question, and sure enough, it you know it gives you that answer based on the data that you trained it with. Uh, yep. and it's pretty spot on, and it's going to be amazing. What what's next?
1: Yeah. So imagine when you have a model like OpenAI, like GPT four. That is that has access to all your data in real time. It indexes that, Mm -hmm. it understands it contextually, and it has access to tools. You can build tools and you can say, hey, I got $20,000 available capital. Look at all my analytics and and create POs that maximize my $10,000, $15,000 available. Not only create them, ship them off too. I mean, think about what that does. You don't need a VA to do that anymore. You don't need spreadsheets anymore. You had a conversation, and it took something that would have taken you half a day to do analysis on. And by the way, most sellers are not optimizing their POs for profitability mm-hmm. because it's actually difficult. You could do it in um, Excel, but it's a it's a certain type of data analysis um, plug-in, and most people are not really wanting to go learn how to do that. I had to do it because I took. I was a finance major, we had to look at things like that. We had to say, okay, well, managerial accounting, here's three options. Which one actually makes the most profit? Which one has the higher ROI? And when I learned that I had the Amazon business and I started to apply it to it, it's like, oh, my, you know, I'm I'm gonna intentionally not order a hundred percent of this thing. I'm gonna order 25% of what I could and then shift it over here because I do have a limitation in capital. I only have 10 grand to spend on POs. So what actually mathematically is the optimal way to maximize ROI uh, you know, based on what is available? Models are pretty good at doing that. You know, So we're just going to, a, again, a, a world of high leverage. But you, you have to understand. I, I think what's important for a lot of cells right now is to, underst- to learn enough to understand when AI, the term, is being used correctly and incorrectly. There's still a lot of people taking advantage of it. It's kind of like the whole crypto thing, right? Like a lot of people took advantage of it because it sounded cool, but that doesn't mean that crypto is bad. Bitcoin, Ethereum, there's a lot of value there, but a lot of people positioned it incorrectly and you had a lot of fraud. So it's educating yourself about what is true, what is actually possible now, and what is going to be possible in, in the next three to six months. And you have to keep in mind, this is exponentially growing technology. Linear, if I say take 10 linear steps, you're 10 feet forward. If I I say take 10 exponential steps, it it doubles, right? So uh, I'm not going to do the math, but it's way further than 10. (laughs) Um, Technology grows exponentially. What was Mm -hmm. possible six months ago versus today, fundamentally different, fundamentally different. And so even what Maven is a month from now could be fundamentally different because there was a breakthrough in, in. some version, some some subcomponent of AI that we're like, holy crap, we can now do this. And now let's go figure out if it actually increases performance or not. That's why it's important to have, I think, a model versus a bunch of strategies. The model itself can change. You know, um, I love Tesla. I love the fact that you can buy a car and you can get a notification that says, hey, there's a software update, your car just got better. You didn't pay for that. You didn't have to go get a new one. Why can't your Your models, your your repricing tool also do that. Why can't you wake up to an email that says, hey, we've been testing, we added in age of inventory as a attribute. um, And in our testing, it increased performance in some fashion by 10 to 20%. So now you have access to that and all of a sudden your sales are better and you did nothing. Versus being like, hey, here's a whole new strategy and you have to go and understand it and when to apply and blah, blah, blah. No, 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 make it easy. I want you to do the least amount of work possible. And get the most output from our software, and I think that's that's where things are starting to change. Interesting. It's gonna be it's a, it's a good time to be an
0: Amazon seller. So yeah, <laughs> let me let me let me shift gears just a little bit, and sure, you get to you get to see behind the curtain. You get to see you've got access to millions of points of data and, and all of that. Um, and so I'm curious for for those sellers who are are using strategies within Aura. Uh, what are some of the most
1: interesting strategies that you've seen deployed? Let me. I'm. i going to flip it. I'm going to tell you some of the things that I notice that users do that they should not be doing because there's a lot of pitfalls. So perfect. I've always said that min, min prices are specific to you as the seller and your costs. Max prices have nothing to do with you. Interestingly enough, when we jump in and people are like, oh, like, it's going crazy. I'm not sure what's happening. Well, yeah, you're setting your max prices to $1,000 and the buy box is $25. Um, but then they'll, have, they'll be doing the oscillation strategy, which naturally takes your price from your min to your max price. So it suppresses it. You get potentially higher pricing errors. The, the counterintuitive thing is a lot of people are like, well, I said that because if somebody wants to pay me 500 bucks for it, I want to be able to accept it. Nobody's going to pay you 500 bucks for a $25 item, <laughs> like especially when there's 30 other sellers. Not going to happen, right? And so funny enough, when you compress the gap between your min and your max price, the performance tends to go up. And it's it's due to one of two things. Either when your price goes up, you're competing with other repricing tools. They're typically set to raise price as well. Um, so they're not the lowest offer to maintain profitability. So they pop up and we start this whole thing again. Or just psychologically, right? If if I'm let's say uh, there's three of us, and one of us is at 30 bucks, the other two are at 25, and then I look and I go, "You only got one unit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you. I'm going to go to 30. Why? Well, because that's reasonable, right? Is it reasonable for, for somebody to go from 25 bucks to 30 bucks and somebody buy that? Yeah. But if that $30 seller is actually at 150, where do I go? Most sellers don't want to think about that. They don't want to do the analysis. They don't want to say, you know, 30 is kind of reasonable. Let me go there. Because now the gap, there's no reference point. There's no anchor, right? Um, our brains love anchoring to things, right? It's like when you're doing a negotiation, you you're never want to be the first person to talk, right? You never want to throw out the number because now that's the anchor. Or you throw out a higher number so that that's the anchor. So now if I know I want to end up with 500 bucks sold, I'll list it for 750, have you negotiate me down to 500. And now you feel like you got a great deal. I got exactly what I wanted because we anchored from 750, the same concept. Mm -hmm. And so if you're the seller that's going to 150 in that example on that skew, you're not really getting any performance out of it. Right. And so that becomes kind of a problem. Um, So that's like the major thing. Um, And honestly, setting min prices too high. So funny, this is kind of interesting, especially with Maiden. Um, we we do a lot of testing ourselves. We have a demo account um, with with active SKUs so we can actually test some crazy theories and just see what is true, right? Because a lot of things are counterintuitive. And we were setting, um, I think it was like 20, 30% minimum ROI. Or I think we're doing profit margin. We're like, okay, cool. Let's just take it to zero. See what it does. What does Maven do? Do we get less uh, margin? What happens? Turns out we had more... The, mo- the model had more range to self-optimize within. And so our sales actually went up and we didn't lose any profit margin because <laughs> the model's fine-tuned to find that optimal price and to use the behaviors of our competition to get us there. Well, if they can't actually get to the competition and then utilize their behaviors, they can't pull it back up. And so funny enough, with, when you're talking models, a lot of times, yeah, you want to have some level of, of limitation um, in the model itself, but you really want to give it enough space, if you will, to do what it needs to get done. And so depending on what you're doing, if you're doing rule-based versus AI, the way you think about it kind of needs to be different. Um, so we, we we had somebody jump into Pro. It's like, man, my sales are just not where I thought they were gonna be. All right, let's take a look. And he's got his max prices. You know, where it would have been with rule-based strategy was totally fine. I was like, hey, half it. All of a sudden, things started to take off for good. He's like, yep. <laughs> like, crazy right like i ne- as a seller he's like i never would have done that because i'd be afraid that it would just push everything down but maybe it's not designed Ooh. to push it down it's finding the optimal price but how it does that it needs space to do it and so that's kind of some interesting tidbits of what we've noticed so far
0: okay yeah now by using that logic do sellers also need to kind of reframe the way they think about profits in in the fact that maybe we need to stop thinking about a per sale profit and rather a per skew profit margin, uh, or or even just a, a profit margin as a as a business whole.
1: Yeah, um, it's funny. A lot of sellers are like, well, I expect X profit margin or X ROI. I'm like, okay, well, do you buy inventory? that makes that possible? Or is that just what you want? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what you want. It matters what the market will give you, right? And so you'll have some sellers where they are they expect a 30% minimum ROI, but the buy box is like right there. They're like, well, I don't want to lower it. I want at least 30%. I get that. But the market's telling you, you overpaid. Right? So it is important to look at, but it's less about like, How do you tweak your repricing uh, strategies to operate in that? It's really, how do you say, here's what the margin that I'm getting is, because again, especially if you're using Maven, we're finding the optimal price, right? So we're finding that as as best as we can. Um, You're not gonna go in and be like, well, increase it by 10%. That's not how that works, (laughs) right? We can't control the market. Nobody can, no repricing tool can. But what you can control is the inventory you're willing and unwilling to purchase. So you're always going to have a spectrum, right? You're always going to have some stuff that you got to take a loss on because it was just a bad buy. Things are hyper-profitable. You have to really, as a seller, hone in the type of inventory that will allow you to get sales at the ROI or profit margin that you desire. The profit margin you get in sales is just the market, right? Like if I'm selling my car in the market for used cars is horrible. I can all day long be like, well, I want at least five grand for it. But if the market value is 2000, and there's competition on that particular vehicle, you're just going to hold it more. And basically, you now have to wait for the market to correct. But how long does that take? It could be a day because just something happened, or it could be months, it could be a year. And so when you're not flipping, like if it's a vehicle, sure, hold it. You got one thing, it doesn't cost anything to hold, there's no opportunity cost, sure, hold it, flip it. But with inventory, running a business, you need velocity, right? Because like, you holding that for this theoretical 30% ROI, when actually you could take 10% ROI today, and you've already held it for, let's say, two months, and you could re-spend that on more profitable inventory where you could actually get 40% ROI sales all day long. That matters. And that's where you got to be strategic and think about things like opportunity costs, how you compound your profits and your sales. and so. It's a more broader discussion and less about how do you tweak your repricing tool for that. Now, if you're setting your min prices too high, yeah, you should probably set them lower, (laughs) right? That's, that's just a given. Like, like Chris was saying, you know, if you're, if the buy box is at or below your min price, it doesn't matter. You need to move your inventory, unless it's just one seller, you can wait them out for a few days. Sure. Be strategic, but, um, that's why I keep saying, right? Like, the better your inventory, the better your repricing performance will be all day long.
2: Yeah, anyone that uh, didn't understand uh, when people say you make your money at the the purchase point, you know, like just listen to the last five minutes of of what you've been talking about, that that (laughs) explains it perfectly. Um, So you, uh, when you're explaining uh, the the massive changes uh, in in Mm -hmm. 1.0, uh, you alluded to the uh, the future roadmap being uh, just as robust. Yeah. Can you can you give us a, a peek or a, a trailer for that?
1: So I can give you some some ideas of, how, of what we're thinking about. So there's some smaller stuff, right? Some smaller uh, page features and stuff like that that we want to add. Um, there's some quality of life things like right now on the all offers where we show you the current offers <laughs> on each SKU. Um, we showed the seller ID. That's not as friendly. You know, Amazon doesn't just give you the storefront name, unfortunately. So we have to find a different way to do that. Um, so that's like the smaller stuff. But man, like there's a huge gap in the market for kind of what I've been talking about, which is like data, right? How how do we give you data and not just dump you the data, like give you data in a way that is insightful, that helps you make better decisions faster. So you don't have to... And, and, computer science, you have push versus pull. Pull is where I have to go find the information and, and the insights myself. Push is where the system does that for you and just says, here, here's what you need to know. Push is typically preferred. It's less work, right? And it's more refined and thoughtful. And so I think, one, there's there's a lot to be done in that world. There's also some interesting things like, I can't tell you the pages or the features we're looking at, but there's some other pages of data that nobody else is showing you that we could show you in real time and we can link out to everything and show you exactly what's happening. Um, where, you know, for a newer seller, probably less impactful, but for somebody who really likes to be in the weeds and watch what's happening real time with, with, uh, their account, we can actually show that to you. So there's a lot there. There's even, um, Taking the new features and enhancing those, right? Everything right now is a is a better foundation. Yeah, there's new features, but it's like V1 of those features. So hyperdrive is a good example. You have to choose which 50 are u- utilizing it. Why couldn't you put that on autopilot and just say, hey, Aura, every hour you scan my inventory and you determine based on what you see in your data, which 50 really need it right now. And then you just auto balance it for me. You know, so there's that um, enhancing workflows um, there's a lot more events. Now there's age of inventory added as as data. So we could use that as a event or a trigger for changing strategies. But even that's for like rule based. But let's talk Maven. There's, you know, Maven is just the v1 model. So we've seen great performance with it. But there's a lot of things we want to do with it. There's a lot I mean, could we factor in seasonality? Can we get that data even um, what happens when we factor in age of inventory as an attribute, maybe the behavior itself changes. And so for us, it's less about, it's not just adding new features, definitely the case, right? But it's also the way we built things enables us to make that thing itself better over time. Kind of the Tesla analogy I was getting earlier, right? I want you to be able to wake up to an email from us and be like, hey, you're now on V2 of Maven, enjoy the new performance. <laughs> like, Enjoy the bump in 10, 20% of profit margin, of sales velocity, whatever it happens to be, even just more fine-tuning it and making it more accurate, right? There's always going to be that. But there's also, we've had people say, well, you know, the balance is awesome, but sometimes I do want to liquidate and maybe I'm willing to prioritize sales velocity over profitability. Well, totally makes sense, right? So it, it's not that we would add more strategies, but we could add more models that are fine-tuned for certain outcomes. And that might be, it's not optimized for the optimal price. It's something different. So that could be the case. Um, why couldn't we factor in certain strategies when you're about to go out of stock versus when you do go out of stock or when you're coming in stock, maybe there's something interesting we could do there. Um, maybe there's other data sets such as, what if we do know your, uh, what if we can forecast your inventory, your restock? and We can be like, great, you don't wanna go out of stock. Maybe we'll slow you down a little bit, right? Like. There's so much there. This, again, goes back to the whole complexity component. How do we provide the model with more complexity, assuming it increases performance, because ultimately that's what matters. Um, So there's a lot there. Um, We would love to explore ASIN to ASIN stuff. So like private label would be kind of interesting to go into. What's nice is we built an incredible product team and a support team. So for us, the challenge is deciding what is the most impactful things for our team to work on? And so it's really a decision opportunity cost problem. (laughs) It's less about, oh, it's this one thing. It's like, I mean, really there's like four or five massive impactful things we could build and it's figuring out where do we spend our time effectively. Um, So I, I can't give like a huge rundown, but, you know, even integrations, we would love to have far more integrations. We would love to really lead that. I think there's a lack of integrations um in the amazon software space where it really is like you have to contact the team get approval work with them versus why don't you just have an api and we could just hook onto it we can build it you don't have to give us permission we can just do whatever we need to um so even for us we re it in a way that we can actually release a public api we've had a lot of sellers be like hey i'm coming kind of technical or i want to hook it up to zapier great Go build whatever you need to build, right? I want you to build, I want you to say, hey, I have a very unique way I manage things. Great, you you write your own code, have an engineer do whatever you need and then just integrate with Aura and it doesn't have to be a whole application. You're just hitting your API endpoints and doing whatever the heck you need. Um, So now Mm -hmm. people can build things that, maybe it's not worth our time to build because it's so specific to one seller. Whereas we have to think about our entire user base, but they can go build it. And there's nothing stopping them. They don't have to sit down with their team. It's like, Here's the API endpoints. Here's you, how you authenticate. Here's the documentation. Go build whatever you need to. Um, I think that gets kind of interesting. So there's, there's a, a, a blank canvas for us, which is a good problem to have.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think you're, you're probably uh, not too far away from uh, calling yourself a, a repricer being a disservice. You know, it, it's yeah. a couple of those things <laughs> so. get installed and it's it's basically a co-pilot, yeah. you know, for for your seller account. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that, uh-huh. that gets interesting too, right? Like, why can't you have a discussion? It's funny, I, I think it's still in the Vindra Serum blog. I wrote a, a thing six, seven years ago and it was basically me theorizing what it would be like to be a seller in the future. And I was like, hey, Siri. Um, sorry, I actually triggered mine. No, not now, yes. not what I wanted say the trigger word, and be like, place my restock order, please. And it pulls all the data and does the thing. And since it's like, you're good to go. That's possible. Now, it's just building it, right? Like the the technology is there. It's building products, again, within a world where AI is actually applicable, and actually adds value. And so yeah, I mean, why couldn't you? um, Why couldn't any founder in any industry? Have access to more complexity faster and have a level of intelligence that makes you superhuman and better um every tool i use has some form of ai that is assisting it might not complete the thing like my email client my uh task manager if i'm just like i'm, I'm not sure how to get started on this project great i can hit their api assistant and Be like break this down for me <laughs> and it's not hundred percent but it's good enough for me to avoid what's called the blank page problem just staring at something be like, what the heck do I do? Just give me something to start moving with, start working on. Um, and so I think that world's coming. And for us, we always think about our identity as a company. And yeah, we we are a repricing company. But for us, it is kind of a disservice in terms of how we think and what we're attempting to solve. I was talking to a new startup founder in our space uh, yesterday. And, you know... it. it Doing relatively well, um, but it's going to hit massive limitations super fast for a number of reasons. And he's like, "Well, what do I work on? You know, should I just build this thing but different? You know, I'm like, no. (laughs) Like the thing you're attempting to solve is worth it, but the way you attempt to solve it is what matters. Ideas are dime a dozen; it's the execution that matters. And you're in a space where new technology is applicable here, and you have access to it. You don't have to be an academic researcher." to understand this stuff anymore. And so for us, we're always thinking about that. We're always thinking about, well, if you were to build that tool today, one, what's the actual problem? Because that defines your, your feature set and what the product is that you build and how you build it. And then two, what's the ideal state? And three, can you do that now? Oh, we can? Okay, well, that's pretty exciting. Now you can start to play around in this idea versus well, what if these two things talk to one another? What if this model had access to this data set and all these things? And that's why it's easy for me to say, eventually you won't have a virtual assistant helping you source, you will have an AI agent that will do it for you. Because I can tell you exactly the data set you need. I can tell you exactly um, how, well, I can tell you theoretically how to build it. There's obviously a lot of things that need to happen to make that perfect. Is 80% good enough? Because now you don't need to go hire five more VAs, you just spin up 20 more instances of that same model and it's running 24 seven. That is possible. Um, so you know, for, for me, the way we think about us ourselves as a company, and this is why I'm so proud that we we've never outsourced anything, is because we have collected and like the get hired with us is difficult, like we put everybody like even Casey, who just came on board today, went through multiple rounds of interviews and was put through his paces. And that's important, because I tell people we hire you for your brain, not for the task or the role. The task in the world should evolve. It should change. We are in, we're in software. What is possible via software today versus a, a month from now is fundamentally different at this point. So I need somebody who's curious, who's passionate about what we're working on, who can problem solve, who can think with first principles. I told him before we jumped into this call how we handle support right now should be fundamentally different in three to six months. And here's how I think that's going to happen. And here's the resources that led me to believe that. And your job is to go figure that out. I mean that's. That's fun. And I think that's why a lot of other software companies in our space assume we outsource everything because they're like, there's no way you can pull off what you're pulling off with five or six people. We solve the scale problem, right? We use technology every single, I mean, this whole technical leverage philosophy that we've been talking about here, we apply internally. Why not? Mm -hmm. It's possible. And so I think sellers need to start to get on board with that and start to kind of have that philosophy themselves too. Um I think that's where innovation gets really interesting. And I hate to use innovation because it's like overdone, especially in corporate America. But there are things that sellers could be doing right now that could 10X their revenue if they approached it correctly and treated it seriously.
0: That sounds like a follow up conversation, uh, to be <laughs> quite honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but because i i want to go down that rabbit trail and i'm I'm keeping <laughs> myself from from doing it um just just for sake of time i i want to i want to mm-hmm. pivot one more time um sure. i know that you are i know that you're a biohacker i know that you uh tinker yeah. with new tools and technologies uh to you know to try to get that extra five percent so okay. what are the what are the tools outside of aura uh that have had the the most profound impact on you recently
1: yeah uh, that's a good question actually um so there's, there's a few uh shifting from just in case information consumption to just in time information consumption is dramatic and what i mean by that is a lot of sellers will be like oh let me go learn how to hire a va and it's like week one and you don't have inventory it's not a problem you need to solve now so Don't worry about it. We have this like scarcity mindset of information, right? Like if I don't learn it now, then like, oh, no. When we went to go hire, when I hired my first engineer, I had no idea what I was doing and failed a lot, but learned from it and then pivoted, right? But what I didn't do is say, let me go learn how to recruit and hire six months before. when When we were like, we need to hire somebody, I said, great. Part of my day is now learning how to do that the right way, learning the best practices, what have you. So that frees up when a lot of people are like, oh, I'm just overwhelmed with information because you don't have a good enough filter. If you know what your problems are, where you're going, I'm a huge fan of reverse engineering, right? Where do you want to go? Define it. What needs to be true? What are the projects that if you completed will get you closer to that outcome? Great. What are the tasks within those projects that need to be completed? What's the knowledge you need to learn and the skills you need to build to complete those projects in those tasks? That's how you do it. Back there. Easy. That's a lot of sellers have four hours a day to work on their businesses. And they're sitting down watching three hours worth of information that's not applicable to them yet and by the way it's all recorded it's still going to be there (laughs) like when you need it that's what's fun so i think one that helps a ton also just like i'm a diligent note taker i externalize everything in my life every task if it's not on my calendar it doesn't exist um that allows me to free up the amount of information stored in my brain your brain's really for processing, not for storage. It's not a hard drive, it's a CPU. So externalize everything. If I'm working on a project, I got a note about that project, I got everything written down, I work on it. Um, that's like the knowledge-based kind of stuff. But you know, on the more biohacking side, listen, if you struggle with focusing, there's science to that. You know, I, I have short-term memory deficit, I have dyslexia, and I have ADD. So there's things that I do to help with short-term memory to help with my um, executive function, which tends to be the major issue for ADD um, and dyslexia. That's actually pretty straightforward. Uh, mine's mine's uh, characters, so words, not numbers necessarily. So I just put Grammarly on all my computers and it just fixes it for me. Right, like little things that can just fix this. But for people with ADD executive function, well, there's plenty of research on things you can do and take that increases uh, executive function. One of those things that's not something that you consume is externalizing everything. Executive fun- function is basically keeping things at the forefront of the mind in real time as you're working on it. Kind of struggle with that, so I put it in a note so I don't have to do that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I, like, right now I have, a, I, have a, I installed a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor, because turns out when your blood sugar is spiked, your brain doesn't function correctly and you're unproductive. So now I said, well, how do I learn to fix that and How do I know that that's happening? Go get it. You install it. It's got an app. You write down what you're eating in real time. It's got the data and says, hey, based on what is happening, here's our recommendation. Why don't you make these? Why don't you do this? Why don't you not eat that? I need this other thing. And then all of a sudden I have less spikes. And the whole reason why people have the afternoon brain fog is because you ate a bunch of things that spike your blood glucose. So don't do that. Now you won't have brain fog. Great. You just freed up focused effort. Um, you know, so there, there's stuff like that. You know, I'm I'm playing around and experimenting with different peptides right now because that's kind of an interesting uh, area of study that's doing pretty well right now. So I like learning about some cutting edge stuff there too. Um, I try to not to be super hardcore on the biohacking side of things, although I definitely do a lot of that. I think that's the the hardcore stuff that is sometimes just needed, but it's simple stuff. Like I just know that if I sit down and write what I'm attempting to accomplish. It's on my calendar and I start a timer, a Pomodoro technique. I'm going to be 5x more productive than if I don't do that because I'm easily distracted. Welcome to ADD. (laughs) So great. Okay. Well, if I'm going to easily get distracted and go to YouTube and Twitter, maybe (laughs) I use an app on my Mac that I say for the next hour, don't let me do that. And I can't undo it. Like It's like, you are not going there for the next hour, period. Okay. I'll do that. I will put on some binaural beats. I will set a clear um, end goal. You know, you when you go down this world, you you start to learn things like flow science, right? So flow is like when you're in the zone. Turns out there's plenty of science that can teach you how to get into it and the things that block it. So at the end of each day, I have a daily review event. It's 15 minutes of checklist I go through. And the first thing I say, check for flow blockers. I will go through and I will actually run through a a survey essentially to figure out what flow blocker am I really struggling with based on which one I'm struggling with the most. I have a protocol that will go and attempt to utilize to neutralize them, right? So again, I'm externalizing everything. I'm learning as much as I can about how things work and then turning that into a checklist or a protocol algorithm, whatever the heck you want to call it so that I'm holding myself accountable. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it perfect? (laughs) No, (laughs) there's days where I'm like, I'm not (coughs) going to be great today. And that's just being human. But for me, you know, I went from being labeled as learning disabled and being told you're not, you're not capable of going to college. And I believe that because I had a teacher tell me to now I read like it's going out of style. I have a whole library back there. Um, I can pretty much teach myself anything. I've accomplished more than I, anybody ever thought I was capable of. And I definitely went back to college full time as a finance major, which was not the easiest thing in the world. So you just realize like, when you start to dive into the data and when you ask yourself, why do I struggle with something? I struggle with learning. Why? Nobody taught me how to learn. Isn't that crazy? Turns out there's plenty of books that's like, here's how to do it. And then I read those books and then I knew how to do it, (laughs) right? And that's not just-in-time information, right? Like don't go read something about memory palaces and techniques if that's not something you're struggling with. So when you can get clear on where do you want to go, What's going to keep you from doing that and what's going to enable you to do that? Then go dive into it. You can, I fundamentally believe this. There is one person on the internet who has obsessed over something so minuscule for the last 10 years and they're dying to teach you and, and tell you about it. And it doesn't always have to be a course. I wanted to get into luxury watches because I've become a, a, a obsessed with James Bond. Turns out there's a whole community there. So I flipped 80 grand worth of watches in my senior year of college and made money on it. Exotic cars, sure. Travel. I couldn't afford it. So I was like, how do I do it for free? Travel hacking. Great. I actually, you used to write a blog on that. Like you can learn anything. There's somebody out there who's like, I obsess with this. And you can go and learn it. So, you know, the biohacking stuff gets fun. There's some stuff like it's like hard to talk about <laughs> because some of it's like off label, but Yeah, I mean, I've I've been open about taking nootropics. Um, I I like it, I think it depends on what you're optimizing for. I think a lot of people take nootropics in a way that's not specific to what they're struggling with. So if you're struggling with fatigue and you're just exhausted, okay, or are you physically or mentally exhausted? Because depending on which one you're dealing with, there's a recommendation. If it's physical, if you're a man, I'm probably gonna look at your testosterone if you're over 35, because that plummet's like 5% every single year, (laughs) starting at 35 immediately. So let's talk about that. If it's um, mental exhaustion. Okay, well, there are peptides that help with neural inflammation. There are things that help with building more synapses that can help. You know, so it just, it depends on what's happening. That's what's difficult with biohacking is everybody's just like, do a cold plunge, do infrared sauna. It's like, yeah, they're all tools. <laughs> but what are you what are you working for, right? Biohackers that want to live forever um they're gonna biohack vastly different than somebody who's like no i don't i'm not worried about living forever i'm worried i'm really working towards maximizing my cognition totally different ends of the spectrum in my opinion um that's all that's a whole thing i wrote a whole blog post i don't think i published it maybe i did um basically trying to create a framework for how to enter into biohacking and say how do you reverse engineer what you end up doing what are the the things you consume the supplements the activities, all these things, how do you tweak your day based on actual data? So, like, everybody says kale's he- healthy. I did a biome test for, for gut health, turns out horrible for me. So, everything has to be hyper personalized. And so, we're getting to a world where you can get access to advanced testing for a relatively affordable rate. Um, and so, for me, it's always like, if you're a guy, testosterone, look at your um, vitamin breakdown, because sometimes you just have a vitamin B deficiency. <laughs> you fix that one thing, you feel superhuman all of a sudden. You don't even need the hardcore things like modafinil peptides. Um, it's just, for me, fixing the, de- the uh, deficiencies and having a good foundation. And then if you feel you want to take it further, then you can. That's kind of how I like, approach it. So it's hard for me to say, like, here's the things. just not as transferable, if you will. Mm-hmm long-winded answer. I know I'm king of that. <laughs> I'm king of, it depends actually.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's like, we going back to the chat G- GPT, you know, there, there's, um, there's all this information and, and all this ability to, to distill so many things that that you could never look up on your own. But then some people are writing haikus about how their boss is a jackass, you know? So it's, it's how, <laughs> you know, different people, you, or like, and it's, it, it's, you know, this, go back to the very beginning of of this interview, you know, maybe Thanksgiving's on my mind, um, maybe reflective on why I can't lose that weight, but uh, you know, I think people approach repricers as blue box mac and cheese, right? But you're bringing (laughs) like the 12 cheese blend with the crunchy crumble on top. I mean, you just, you bring in so much more. I I appreciate how thoughtful uh, it is. I hope that translates uh, in in this episode. Um, Thank you. Can you, can you give me, um, I, I'm always looking for, for my next good read. Can you give me a, a recommendation mm. for a book or a blog to read? Maybe keep it at the Velveeta shells and cheese level, not, not full.
1: <laughs> so let me use what I've been talking about here. What's the biggest problem you're having right now? Um, oh, I, let, I'm going to phrase love, this a few it, different ways. Biggest, biggest problem, biggest concern, or biggest interest right now?
2: Uh I'm I'm waiting. I'm still trying to find the the productivity slash deep work, which you hinted at, uh that that speaks to me. You know, I've read I've read a couple okay. different, but uh yeah, that's that's sure. kind of where I'm focusing. Currently reading and enjoying okay. rework right now, if if that helps you out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um deep work and focus are are kind of they're actually two different things. So um on the I'm gonna give you a few different recommendations here. On the the deep work side obviously you have the cal newport deep work i thought it was okay Um, i think it was a little too philosophical on the on the high end um but still if you haven't read it worthwhile definitely a good like how to think about this and how to do it um deep work really means flow state so flow state is its own subject there's um, a guy named stephen kotler um, who they have the flow research collective there's plenty of books. There's Stealing Fire. Um, I think there's one just called Flow. He's got a few different books. Read the most recent one. Um, I would highly recommend watching him speak because he talks about flow from a few different perspectives and how to get into it. and what what Flow is not a binary state. It's not you're in deep work or out of it. It's actually four phases and you have to sequentially go through it. So when you start to understand that, you're like, oh, okay, I can really like force myself into it. Um, so that's going to help with Focus and deep work. I think something that's odd on the focus side is actually note taking. (laughs) So, a lot of people struggle with focus because there's too much happening up here. That's that whole executive function issue, right? Whether you have ADD or not, there's too much for us to retain in today's world tasks, projects, goals, what's true, what's not true, being able to externalize everything. The old book was Getting Things Done by David Allen. I think it's still good for task management, but Building a Second Brain by Tiago Forte is a fantastic book for understanding like, how do you externalize things in a way that rationally makes sense? And then why is it important to take notes and all these things? So like, if you've solved a problem, like when we hire, I will write notes about what did I learn of how to do it, what worked and what didn't work at the end of these project. So when I need to go hire again, I'm not redoing all the work. The JD shifts a little bit. The job description shifts a little bit because I took the time to write it correctly. The process of how do I schedule? How do I do a first round, a second round interview? How do I make an offer? I've already done that work once and I get to reuse it again and again. So the speed at which I can go from I need to hire somebody to I have hired somebody amazing gets compressed from three months down to three weeks, which we just did. That book is fantastic. Um, Highly recommend it. It's a a relatively fast read to Um, you know, so, you know, the, the mac and cheese level, I would say would be those books, um, flows a little in the weeds, but I'm telling you, it is worth your time to understand and learn because the amount of productivity you get from your time when you're in a flow state is like five X productive from some of the studies they did at McKinsey on executives. (laughs) So like that four hours, I can turn that into like eight hours (laughs) easily. Uh, if you're in a flow state for four hours, which is kind of the upper limit. Uh, uh upper limit appreciate that fantastic
0: yeah uh, dylan this has been this has been great uh i we're we're about an hour and a half and this there i don't know there there's so much to unpack i'm not sure we would be doing everybody a service uh <laughs> by keeping going plus i am sure you got to get back to to work uh but yeah. i do like to we we always like to end the episode with uh with a quote of the day uh and this week comes from one of my favorite Writers, thinkers of of today. His name is Shane Parrish. He runs FS Blog. Oh, yeah. uh, has written written a few books, things like that. Um, and it's kind of for the the newer seller. So uh, you don't need enough courage for the entire journey. You only need courage for a few seconds to overcome self doubt before you take the next step. Uh, so don't don't forget that if you're if you're just getting started or if you're working on a new problem, uh, you don't uh you really don't need enough courage. you. you you will figure out how to build that parachute on the way down. So Dylan, thanks so much, man. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Clear the Shelf with Chris and Chris. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot on your phone and share to Facebook, Instagram, or your favorite FBA group. And be sure to tag me and let me know why you liked it and what you'd like to hear more from us in the future. Also, I'd like to give you some free gifts for listening. Head over to rabbittrailchallenge.com and repricerchallenge.com for some free courses to further your business. Thanks for listening.